Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. When it comes to picking the perfect treats for your dog, Stuart makes the choice easy by keeping it real. Real ingredients, real nutrients, real benefits. Stuart dog treats are free from additives, corn, soy, wheat, and grains. Plus, they're freeze-dried to lock in all the great nutrition and natural flavor your furry friend deserves. Stuart freeze-dried dog treats. Big, tail-wagging nutritional benefits. Available on Amazon.com today. I'm Margaret Brennan in Washington, and this week on Face the Nation, the U.S. steps up pressure on Israel to do more to protect civilians as the pause to release hostages ends and the Israeli offensive resumes. The bombing in Gaza is back as Israel continues its efforts to destroy Hamas. Despite Israeli leaders vowing to do all they can to keep civilians out of the crossfire, the Biden administration says they need to do more. Too many innocent Palestinians have been killed. As Israel defends itself, it matters how. The center of gravity is the civilian population. And if you drive them into the arms of the enemy, you replace a tactical victory with a strategic defeat. We'll have the latest on the conflict and the efforts to free the rest of the hostages. Plus, we'll talk with House Intelligence Committee Chairman Mike Turner about his concerns about our own ability to gather intelligence to prevent attacks here in the U.S. Plus, six weeks out from the first votes in the 2024 presidential contest, are the other contenders giving Trump a pass on his inflammatory attacks? Biden and his radical left allies like to pose as defenders of democracy. Joe Biden is the destroyer of American democracy. We'll talk to GOP candidate and former New Jersey governor Chris Christie. He says he's trying to hold Trump accountable. But is anyone listening? Even Former FDA head Dr. Scott Gottlieb is back to talk about the spike in respiratory illnesses among children. Finally, we say goodbye to three remarkable public servants. And Washington breathes a sigh of relief at the departure of one whose public service was anything but distinguished. It's all just ahead on Face the Nation. Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation. We have a lot to get to today, but we begin with our Chris Livesay reporting from Jerusalem. With the ceasefire in shambles, Israeli defense forces are once again pushing to annihilate Hamas, pushing south, warning residents to flee the city of Han Yunus, a suspected Hamas command center, but also home to Hani Abu Taima. I will never see my friends again, she says. I can only play with sand instead of toys. It's hard for us to get food and water here, and a lot of my friends are dead. At the Shuhada Al-Aqsa Hospital, women and children scramble for treatment and shelter. Israel has sworn to minimize the loss of civilian life even to persist with negotiations, but under fire. We will continue the war until we achieve all its goals, vows Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. That's impossible without the ground operation. A ground operation that gives Israel leverage, he insists, to free the remaining 130 hostages, including eight Americans who remain in the clutches of Hamas. Now, for the first time, many of those freed describe their torment in detail. 
desperate for food and air in Hamas's tunnels. Our girls have seen things that kids should not see. A horror film, recalls Daniel Aloni. We just slept and cried. Every day that passed was an eternity. A horror film that terrified their families at home as well, says Hadas Calderon. The first sentence they said to me when we met was, Mommy, you're alive. Mommy, we didn't know you were alive. This weekend, Israeli intelligence sent a team to Qatar to continue negotiations. But Margaret, that same team turned around just hours later, saying Hamas wasn't living up to its end of the bargain, which included the release of all women and children. That's Chris Livesay in Jerusalem. And we're joined now by the chair of the House Intelligence Committee, Congressman Mike Turner. Good morning. Good to have you here. Good morning, Margaret. So our colleagues here at CBS have heard from more Israeli soldiers, mainly female, saying that they had reported up the chain of command warnings about a potential Hamas attack. The New York Times, the FT, they have details, specific ones, going back a year The White House says this wasn't shared with U.S. intelligence. Um, If this is America's closest Mideast ally, should that concern us? Well, I think what you saw was just a a general dismissal uh, by Israel and Israel's intelligence uh, community of the possibility of this level of a threat, which really goes to the the complete breakdown that occurred here. It's been amazing to uh, have our intelligence community now working closely with the Israeli intelligence community and see the gaps that they have. And this obviously could have been an institutional bias uh, that that resulted in dismissing it. But the other aspect that made this so dangerous is that even when October 7th began to unfold, um, their, their forces didn't react. They didn't have the deployment ability to respond, not just the intelligence ability to prevent it. Which raises questions now about have those gaps been filled? How can you take Israeli assurances that everything they're doing is precise and targeted and exact? Um, Does the United States know where Yahya Sinwar, the the commander who was the architect of this, is? Israel says that he's in South Gaza. Well, certainly the United States is assisting in the location of of Hamas leadership as Israel uh, moves to eliminate the threat of Hamas. And I just received a briefing from CIA director Burns on Friday, who just came back from the Middle East. Uh, He's been working diligently. He's doing a great job on negotiating for the release of hostages and also in trying to make certain that our intelligence apparatus is working closely with Israel to try to fill some of those gaps that they clearly have. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, when it comes to what the United States is doing for our own standards, for our own government, we have to have a nearly certain standard when it comes to counterterrorism, lethal operations, positive ID of the target, no civilian casualties. Should we hold our allies who we provide with weapons and intelligence to that exact same standard? Well, I can tell you that, that we are being selective as to the information that's being provided. It's one thing to be able to, to look to try to identify a specific individual um, and you know, provide information as to their location and, and, and operations and actually directing an operation. I mean, Director Burns has been you know, very clear that we are not just providing direct access to our intelligence, uh, and that certainly gives us the ability to have caution. Is Israel, though, operating on that intelligence to the level, to the standard that they should, that the United States holds itself to, because we just heard from the defense secretary and the vice president that it certainly sounds the U.S. assessment is they're not. With respect to use of U.S. intelligence, I can tell you that that's certainly how how the United States is operating and holding them to that standard. Now, broadly, as you reported, um, the United States is very concerned to the extent that that Israel is not doing enough uh, to protect uh, civilians. And certainly the issue goes even broader to the issue of humanitarian aid being provided to the Palestinians, who are are equally uh, prisoners of Hamas. Mm -hmm. Can aid, which is being bundled in the Senate with Ukraine aid um, to Israel and Ukraine, get through the Republican-controlled House if the stipulation, as I understand it from the Speaker of the House, is that it has to also include provisions regarding the U.S. border? Sure. Speaker Johnson's doing a great job, and he is you know, directly negotiating both with the White House and with the Senate on the aid package, which would include aid to Israel, aid to Ukraine, and also Southeast Asia. But more importantly, in the negotiation process, mm-hmm. it would include changes in our southern border policy, which even Director Ray has identified as a national security threat. 
Yes. Uh, those negotiations are ongoing, and it's going to take the administration coming to the table and recognizing that their policy needs to change. America overwhelmingly wants a southern border addressed. It represents a national security threat, as his own uh, security advisors are, are telling him. You know, we can't have millions of people continue to cross our border and at all believe that we have you know a secure. Uh, you know, so, country with our national security. But what's the specific on that? Because the White House is asking for like $14 billion. Are you saying the money's not enough? You want an overhaul of immigration policy that hasn't happened in decades and for that to happen in the next three weeks? Well, actually, there have been things that happened in decades. If you look back at uh, the, the Trump administration where they had positions that policies such as remain in Mexico, there were policies that were working that were keeping the southern border controlled where the and number of people... And that is a specific ask now. Where the number of people crossing uh, is, is diminished. The administration can make changes, which other administrations have enforced, that, that change the difference. It's the reversal of those policies that have caused Biden's southern border policies to be a failure and the millions of people to have entered our country. So I, I want to ask you something else that Congress, I know you think, needs to get done in a very short period of time, and that is reauthorizing Section 702. We talked about it there as directly related to America's uh, own terror threat and being able to have warrantless surveillance powers. Mark Warner, your colleague over in the Senate, says the main challenge to getting this done is your Ohio Republican colleague, Jim Jordan, who he says wants to take the FBI out of the process. So can you get Jordan and the Freedom Caucus, of which your speaker is a member, on board with this? Well, I think so. 702 is one of our most important tools for monitoring foreign individuals located outside the United States who pose a national security threat to our country. And it's about to expire. And it's about to expire at the end of the year. It does not monitor United States citizens. Uh, I think there are those who look at the behavior of the FBI and want to punish the FBI foolishly by cutting off one of our most important tools to target at foreign individuals. It certainly is also one of our most important tools that we're using to help Israel in this conflict. How is that? It allows us to monitor foreign through this program. We monitor Hamas, Hezbollah, uh, ISIS. Some of our most you know ardent adversaries are monitored in this program, right. and certainly we shouldn't punish the FBI for what they've done in other areas uh, to to uh, to hinder our ability to track terrorists and our adversaries. Has Speaker Johnson committed to taking this version that the intelligence chairs are proposing versus Jim Jordan's version that wants to take the FBI out of this? Right. So we have a bill, uh, myself, Jim Himes, Darren LaHood, uh, Brian Fitzpatrick, Senator Warner, Senator Rubio, and Senator Cornyn have a bipartisan, bicameral bill that would um, address some of the past abuses of the FBI, prevent them from in the future, and also reauthorize 702. Uh, the, the speaker is very supportive of that. We've just got to get it over the line. How? Well, and that's what the problem. Because <clears throat> so I, I do think we've got substance on our side. Yeah. This is the way to go. Uh, the individuals who want to uh, you know, hinder this process uh, really, I think, fully don't fully understand how the process works and are are really not understanding the the value and the importance of this to our national security. But then what we do see is Speaker Johnson saying yesterday on Fox he's going to hold a vote on the impeachment inquiry into President Biden. You're talking about something of immediate national security threat, immediacy and timing, needing to prioritize up, Absolutely. but we're going to have an impeachment inquiry vote instead? You no, know, unfortunately, this is some of the legacy of the chaos that has happened in Congress, where the, those who wanted to shut down the government at the end of the summer are some of those that want to stop the reauthorization of 702. Are wrongly. you going to vote for this impeachment inquiry next week? We'll have to see what the evidence and the, and the information is. We, it has not yet been is presented to Is that the, really us. the top priority, though? You know, you can have more than one priority. Certainly, I think, you know, protecting and enforcing our laws is a priority. But in this, 702 is critical. It needs to be uh, reformed and reauthorized. And the speaker is certainly committed to both those goals. All right. It's always good to have you here in person. Mike Turner. And coming up later on in this program. There's a healthy way to deal with conflicting opinions. Actually, it's okay to disagree. It's not just okay, it's crucial. Did you just disagree with me about disagreeing? It's Colorado Democrat Jared Bolas and Utah Republican Spencer Cox, two governors trying to get people to disagree better. They'll tell us how to do that when we come back. It's three o'clock somewhere. Time for a My Mochi ice cream snack. My Mochi ice cream is cool, creamy scoops of premium ice cream wrapped in sweet, pillowy dough. And get this. 
all of My Mochi's fabulous flavors like strawberry, mango, double chocolate, and cookies and cream are only around 80 calories per piece. Talk about a guilt-free indulgent experience. Each box of My Mochi ice cream has six perfectly portioned gluten-free mochis that are great for grab-and-go. So feel good while curbing your afternoon cravings or the midnight munchies. Yeah, you know who you are with the joyfully chill sensation of My Mochi ice cream. Find My Mochi ice cream at Target or visit MyMochi.com to locate a grocery store near you. It's harder to focus than ever these days. Thankfully, C4 has reinvented the energy drink game with C4 Smart Energy, the only energy drink clinically proven to provide enhanced mental focus, containing 200 milligram of natural caffeine, a blend of vitamins and zero sugar. It was formulated to support your well-being and help you feel your best, all while enhancing mental focus. From your brain to your body, C4 Smart Energy does it all and tastes amazing. Look for Smart Energy in the beverage aisle at your local Kroger, Albertsons, and Safeway grocery stores. See for Smart Energy. Stay focused. And we're back with the Coordinator for Strategic Communications at the White House National Security Council, John Kirby. Always good to have you here. Thank you, Margaret. I want to ask you about this breakdown in the hostage negotiations. Yeah. Uh, the Mossad has pulled their negotiators out of Doha, saying that there's no use in continuing to talk. Is this insurmountable. There are still Americans being held. We don't believe it's insurmountable. In fact, even while the negotiations have stopped, Margaret, we haven't stopped. Our efforts on the National Security Council and according and all the way up to the president, trying to work hour by hour to see if we can get this pause reinstated and get those hostages out. I will say, while the pause has been lifted and no hostage exchanges are going on, what is still going on, importantly, is humanitarian assistance getting in, including including fuel, which is which it is wasn't, re- critical. It's restarted. You're saying so even yeah. So even when the pause ended, what didn't end was humanitarian assistance. We heard from your old boss, <laughs> the Defense Secretary yeah. Lloyd Austin, there um, in the beginning of the program. And he said that the lesson he learned from the ISIS campaign was that in urban warfare, you have to protect civilians. He was pretty sharp in his words. He said he has pushed Israeli leaders to avoid civilian casualties, shun irresponsible rhetoric, prevent violence by settlers in the West Bank. It certainly sounds like the Netanyahu government has not made the changes that they have been asked to make for the past few weeks. They have been receptive to those messages. Those messages that he delivered in public, we are also delivering in private. For three they weeks have been, or more now, including on this program. They have been receptive to those messages. Now, again, I want to make it clear. The right number of civilian casualties is zero. And it's clearly many thousands have been killed and many more thousands have been wounded. And now more than a million are internally displaced. We're aware of that. And we know that all of that is a tragedy. We grieve with all those families. That's why we continue to work, as Secretary Austin said, with our Israeli counterparts to get them to be as careful and as precise and as deliberate in their targeting as possible. And I would tell you, as I said, they have been receptive. They went into North Gaza with a much smaller force than what they had originally planned to do. And here you have in the, last, the United States slowed down those operations. And if you have in the last 24 hours, they have been putting a map online of places where people in Gaza need to avoid and, and need to go. They don't, I don't have know, t- connectivity but, widely in Gaza. But, you know that. Well, they've also been doing it with paper and, and leaflets and that kind of mm-hmm. thing. My, my point is, Mar- Margaret, that it's very rare for a modern military to take those kinds of steps, basically telegraphing their punches before they actually conduct operations. So I think they're listening. I think they're receptive. But you're continuing to deliver this message at pretty high levels, including the vice president of course. Is saying uh, this, that that number, you say thousands. Uh, the Gaza Ministry of Health says it's over 15,000 people who have been killed since October 7th. Does the U.S. have an assessment of civilians? We don't have a specific number that we can speak to, but we know many, many thousands have been have been killed. And again, many, many thousands more have been wounded, but we don't have an exact figure. So um, Hamas, when it attacked so brutally on October 7th, um, you were very strong. You reflected the president's emotion on this, his defense of the Netanyahu government. Um, But Senator Van Hollen, who was on this program recently, uh, faulted you. I want you to listen to it. Many of us were concerned uh, just a few weeks ago when one of the White House national security spokesperson Mm -hmm. uh, was asked if the United States has any 
red lines? Yeah. Um, and the answer was no, uh, which means anything goes. And, and that cannot be consistent uh, with American interests and American values. He's talking about what you said October 24th from the podium. That's a Democrat saying they need clear language from the White House. Everything that we do for a foreign military, including Israel, when you give them security assistance, uh, there are expectations with that security assistance that it's going to be used in keeping with the law of armed conflict, the law of war. And we are in constant touch with our Israeli counterparts about the way that they're prosecuting these operations. Secretary Blinken has said himself, it's not just what you do that matters, it's how you do that matters. But are there red lines? We, we believe that the approach that we've been taking, Margaret, has had an effect. It has allowed Israel to continue to go after a very viable terrorist threat to their existence. But you're and correcting, at the same time, correct course. Are there red lines? Because what we're seeing right now, as the journal was just reporting, I mean, bunker buster bombs, 2,000 pound bombs being handed over. The United States is a really strong supporter of Israel here. Should there right. be brighter lines. We are having these discussions with our Israeli counterparts every day about being careful, precise, and deliberate in their targeting and trying to minimize civilian casualties to the maximum extent possible. I think it's also important for people to remember what they're up against here. Uh, Hamas deliberately shelters themselves inside residential buildings, hospitals, and schools, basically on purpose, putting civilians in the line of fire. And what Israel's trying to do is get them out of the line of fire. So it's an added burden that Israel has as a modern military. We recognize that. But it's also a very difficult burden and obstacle for them to overcome. So, uh, look, we're, we don't want to see a single more innocent life taken here. But, and so we're going to continue to work with, with Israel about this. But the approach that we've been taking has delivered some results, including more than 100 hostages getting out. Right. But you understand the implications for U.S. national security uh, to be um, seen as endorsing all of this, which is what Van Hollen was raising. But I want to ask you about Venezuela as well before I let you go. Um, The U.S. lifted some sanctions off the Maduro regime and set some goals. Uh, November 30th, there were supposed to be three Americans who were determined to be wrongfully detained, released. That didn't happen. No, it didn't. Nor did the release of other political prisoners. Exactly. So what happens now? Will you put more sanctions on? What is the status of those Americans? I don't want to get ahead of where we are in the decision-making process, but we're reviewing our options right now. Uh, they, they had until uh, the evening uh, of the 30th to, to make these kinds of decisions. Unfortunately, they didn't. Uh, and so we're now going back to, uh, to the to policy options and reviewing what, what our chances are. But I don't want to get ahead of Including snapback sanctions. Again, I don't want to get ahead of where we are, uh, but we were extremely concerned that they didn't take those two extra steps, release of political prisoners and getting our wrongfully detained Americans home. That's something we take very seriously, getting those folks home, and we're going to keep at it. All right. Admiral, thank you for being here in person. We go now to the former governor of New Jersey and 2024 Republican presidential candidate, Chris Christie. Uh, Good to have you back on the program. Uh, We know, uh, sir, the RNC is supposed to announce tomorrow who will be on that December 6th debate stage. Uh, Has the RNC told you you've qualified to be there? And if you haven't, will you drop out? Um, I don't think they've told anybody yet who all of us are going to be on the stage. But I'm confident, Margaret, that I will be there, um, that we have all the qualifications necessary to get there. Because you told CNN over Thanksgiving um, you will stay in the race through the convention, which would put you into the summer months. Does the field need to consolidate to beat Donald Trump, which you say is is one of your prime motivations in running? Look, this field has already consolidated more than any non-incumbent field in this century, Margaret. Um, Back this time, uh, eight years ago, we had 13 candidates still in the race. At this time back, you know, in 2011, uh, we had eight candidates in the race. And this time back in 2007, we had nine candidates in the race. Mm-hmm. And so this, this field has consolidated significantly. And I suspect it will consolidate more after folks vote in Iowa and New Hampshire. But isn't it a little bit different that you have the 45th president of the United States running, uh, a known entity who has this automatic platform? It's, it's just a different model. It's a different case. Yeah, it, the other thing that makes it different in Margaret is he's got 91 counts of an indictment against him. The day before Super Tuesday, he's going to start a criminal trial where his former chief of staff and one of the founders of the Freedom Caucus is going to testify that he committed crimes on his watch and was directed to commit crimes by Donald Trump. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of things different about this, and that's why anybody trying to predict this um, is just shooting in the dark. 
But why don't why hasn't that turned off uh, the GOP electorate? Uh, when, when you look at CBS polling and others, he, he is leading, as you know. And then, I mean, you've made clear when some of the other competitors are using really harsh rhetoric uh, that you think that should disqualify them. Why hasn't that extreme rhetoric turned the GOP off of these other candidates either? Well, look, I, I, first off, I don't think you know exactly what's going to happen at all until people vote. Look, if we listen to all the polling, Margaret, Hillary Clinton would be in her second term. So I, I don't believe that polling is nearly as reliable as it used to be. And I don't believe that people tell the truth to pollsters. Mm -hmm. And so at the end of the day, um, everybody's trying to make these decisions now uh, are just wrong. Let's remember something in this in, in the Republican primary in 07. You know who was winning at this time in 07? Mitt Romney. You know, was winning yeah. at this time in 11, Newt Gingrich. And winning this time in 15 was Ben Carson. Um, I don't remember any of those presidencies, Margaret. Uh, so, you know, in my view, um, we can't worry about that kind of stuff. What we need to worry about is the direction this country is going in. And most people don't agree with it. And if you don't agree with the direction of the country, why would you vote for either Trump or Biden who have put us in this direction? This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture-proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx Service Guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, the coldest case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Welcome back to Face the Nation. And we have more now from former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, candidate for the Republican nomination. Um, sir, I, I want to pick up where we left off. You know, we hear from political pundits all the time, oh, Americans just don't care about national security when it comes to how they vote. But you are the only candidate who has gone to both Israel and Ukraine during this campaign, at least only one still standing. Why was it important for you to go? So I think if you want to be president of the United States, you have to see these things for yourself. You can't count on reports from pundits or the press or, or from other folks in, 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 in public life. You've got to see it for yourself. And I will tell you, when I went to Israel, Margaret, just a couple of weeks ago, the inhumanity I saw that Hamas rained upon um, the Jewish people in Israel. I went into one home of a 24-year-old couple recently married. Mm -hmm. Both were murdered in their small three-room home, and there were 140 bullet holes in the walls to kill two people, Margaret. It's not just the inhumanity that Hamas executes. It's the joy they take in that inhumanity. And that's why Israel has to do what they need to do to eliminate that military threat. And I think I, I would not have completely understood it and couldn't be an effective president if I didn't see it for myself. We'll see if some of the other candidates go. Uh, one of the things that I also want to pick up on that we see voters responding to thus far is abortion. Um, you know, it's been a galvanizing issue in favor of Democrats. We've seen that a few times now. Are you concerned that in a head to head that that will help to buoy the president himself uh, as he runs for reelection? And how does a Republican candidate like yourself take the issue to the national stage when the message for decades has well, been it's a state issue? 
Look, I, Margaret, I've been consistent on this. Um, I, I believe the conservative, smart approach is to let the states make these decisions. Um, and that's what I think they should do. And that's why I said um, I wouldn't sign a six-week uh, national abortion ban as Governor DeSantis. And now just recently in Iowa, um, Governor Haley has said she would sign a six-week ban. I don't think you can say one thing in one place and something else in another. And you need to be consistent. For 50 years, Republicans have argued right. that the Supreme Court took this decision away from the people. I think this belongs in the hands of the people of each individual state. We see a great democratic small d event going on right now across the country in places like michigan and kansas and ohio where people are voting let's let the american people vote in their individual states and decide what they want this policy to be so better for the party not to have a national policy essentially is what you're saying i believe that's i believe that's true i believe that's okay. what the constitution uh, guides us to do and that's where we should stay and that's where i've been and i'm concerned quite frankly margaret that, you know, candidates in this race have been all over the block on this. Yeah. Um, and, and it's not right. People deserve to have a straight answer from you. And that's my straight answer. So uh, also giving a fairly straight assessment is Liz Cheney, the former congresswoman who just did an interview with my colleague John Dickerson and told him the United States is sleepwalking into a dictatorship. Bob Kagan, uh, writer, in the New York, in the Washington Post, had an op-ed saying after Super Tuesday in March, Donald Trump will be the Republican nominee and what happens there will be a swift and dramatic shift in the political power dynamic in his favor, saying all Republican critics, perhaps even yourself, will fall silent out of self-preservation. Is that how you see your party behaving after March? Look, I can't speak for everyone in my party. I can only speak for myself, Margaret. And anybody who knows me knows I will not be silent. I haven't been silent since the day I got into this race. And in fact, unlike others, you know, Nikki Haley says he was the right president for the right time. And that for some reason, um, you know, drama and chaos seem to follow him. The reason is that he acts like someone who doesn't care about our democracy. He acts like someone who wants to be. Uh, a dictator. He acts like someone who doesn't care for the Constitution. In fact, he's even said himself he'd be willing to suspend the Constitution if an election wasn't going in his direction. Um, Margaret, I was the only one on that stage going back to August when I when we were asked, would you uh, support someone who, you know, uh, was convicted of a felony uh, for president of the United States? I, Nikki Haley, Ron DeSantis, Vivek Ramaswamy, they all raised their hand. I did not. And I think I've made it very, very clear how I feel about this. And if folks want to return to some decency yeah. and civility, why would you ever vote for Donald Trump? All right. Chris Christie, we'll watch. Thanks for your time. We go now to the co-chairs of the National Governors Association, Utah's Spencer Cox and Colorado's Jared Polis, and their Disagree Better initiative, which is an effort to encourage civil dialogue among American leaders. Good morning to you both. Good morning, Margaret. Well, we, we like trying to we like trying to bring civility back back to politics, although I have to say uh, a lot of what's happening in the world makes that challenging, I think, at times for people. And one of those things I want to dive right into first with you, Governor Cox, um, and that is that the conflict in the Middle East right now has inflamed tensions in this country, arguments, and we're seeing it often play out on college campuses, for example. I know you told state colleges uh, in Utah to remain neutral and stop commenting on current events. You said, I don't care what your position is on Israel and Palestine. I don't care what your position is on Roe versus Wade. We don't need our institutions to take a position on those things. That just sounds like agreeing not to disagree at all. No, no, it's, it's the exact opposite. Um, in, in fact, if you look at, at what we actually put out that, that was voted on unanimously by the, the Board of Higher Ed in our state, the institutions themselves need to be neutral so that we can have these disagreements. We want actually more disagreement on campus. There's a better way to do that. We can disagree without tearing each other apart. That was part of a free speech uh, initiative that we're, we're working on in this state. We want more students on campus to engage in this type of dialogue. We want more politics on campus. 
What's happening, sadly, across the United States is too many of our universities have not followed the, the Chicago principles that were put out many years ago. They, they come out with very strong statements that are very political statements and, and, and end up silencing um, dissent or, or disagreement on campuses. We want campuses to be a place of robust discussion. That's how it was when I was growing up. I think all of us had these wonderful experiences and we want less cancel culture on campus. So free speech means that you have to allow for other people to disagree, even if those are very unpopular opinions. Uh, Governor Polis, is that how you've handled things uh, in Colorado around this issue? Yeah, well, look, the other the other part of that, the second part is no matter what your beliefs, you should be safe, whether it's in a campus, whether it's in a city, uh, w regardless of how you express your opinion, uh, you shouldn't be afraid to walk from one side of campus to another wearing a Jewish star around your neck or if you happen to be a Muslim American. So there's an affirmative responsibility that, of course, our universities have, but also our cities and others. For instance, we just had a major Jewish conference, Jewish National Fund in Denver, uh, major effort, city of Denver, the state, to keep the conferees safe. And there was also room for people to demonstrate and they were able to express their free speech and no one was injured and hopefully it led to a few conversations. But some would argue that there is a moral imperative to speak out. Um, you know, in the college town of Burlington, Vermont, we saw those three young men brutally shot. One may not walk again, um, Palestinian Americans. We've seen this, this spike in anti-Semitism well before October 7th, but even more so, it seems like a deluge afterwards. So how do you balance that in your messaging to the heads of the universities in your state? Yeah, I think it's very important. And what Governor Polis said is exactly that. Um, it is about keeping people safe. What You just gave an example where, where that did not happen. We absolutely should speak out about protecting uh, and keeping people safe on our campuses. That's very different, Margaret, than, than taking a position on a political issue, which is happening all over the country. And, and, and it's, it's ridiculous what, what, what is happens, happening on our campuses when it comes to that. You, you saw it all the time, in fact. Uh, you saw university presidents that were very eager to speak out on all the issues of the day, as, as long as they were leaning one political direction. But mm -hmm. then, of as soon as Israel and Hamas happens, there was silence across, across campuses because, well, if we speak out in, in support of Israel, then, uh, then we m might offend you know, a very vocal part of our campuses. That, that's, that's embarrassing and it shouldn't happen. It's better that the institutions themselves stay neutral on these. And, and look, this is not new. Yeah. This, this is a, 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 a long time thing on our campuses. It should be happening to protect our students so that they can have those ro robust debates. We want this debate to be happening on our campuses. Well, two pro-Israel groups, the Anti-Defamation League and the Brandeis Center, wrote a, two, 200 different university presidents asking them to investigate a group called Students for Justice in Palestine, arguing it's rhetorical support for Hamas. And Governor DeSantis of the state of Florida ordered um, the removal of support in state universities. That's, that's triggered an ACLU lawsuit. Um, Governor Polis, uh, what are your thoughts on that? So, Margaret, thank you, by the way, for drilling in on one of the most divisive topics we face today, because if we can disagree better about Israel and Palestine, we can disagree better about everything. And this is a great <laughs> example and lens to, to view it through. Um, part of what the goal is, is to get people to stop shouting at another, whatever the issue is, whether it's whether it's abortion, whether it's Israel, Palestine, whether it's the border and immigration, stop shouting, start talking and listening. Um, and that's the same with this issue, right? So there are a lot of people shouting at one another. And now that's their right, as long as they don't engage in violence or intimidation, that's, that's their right. But I think that everybody can have a more productive conversation if we try to get in the same room. What does a post-October uh, post, uh, 6th Gaza look like? Who governs it? How can we have security commitments to the Palestinian people, the Israeli people? I think almost everybody who's pro-Israel cares deeply about the Palestinian people. A vast majority of people that are pro-independent Palestine do believe that there should be uh, a Jewish state and the Jews have some role in, in being in Israel. So how do we have these conversations rather than shouting past one another? over what is absolutely one of the most divisive issues of our time, both on campuses and in the broader community. Well, we'll see what, where that specific lawsuit goes. Um, on, you brought up the border. That's certainly also, I'm challenging the premise of, and I want, I want more civility, but tell me how to do it on some of these things because um, I know the, the president was just in Colorado this past week. You are concerned in your state about um, the, the spike in migration. I understand you have also bused migrants to some cities in New York and Chicago, which earned you some harshly worded letters from those mayors there. Um, 
How is that different from what Governor Abbott was doing in Texas? And, and how do you get along better with your fellow governors on this one? Yeah, again, happy to discuss it on policy. Our, our role in Colorado was helping people get where they want to go. Uh, we're just north of, of, uh, of Texas. People come up through, and obviously we're not going to detain them in Colorado. We've uh, had about two or 3,000 Venezuelan refugees that have settled in our state. We've had tens of thousands that have moved on to, to where they're going. Um, but again, I think you, you start with, how do we have a conversation about better security at the border? Democrats want that. Republicans want that. President Biden has proposed it. I hope that Congress acts and actually funds better border security. Now, the flip side is it's not easy. It's not a soundbite. It's not a flashy wall. Right. It's a thoughtful, high-tech approach to border security, asylum reforms, and immigration reform generally. There's a lot of common ground. In fact, with Governor Cox, uh, we've been able to successfully start through the National Governors Association an immigration task force of governors, six Democrats, six Republicans. Uh, we are agreeing on principles around border security and immigration reform that will hopefully serve as an example for Congress. Governor Cox, quickly, has have you gotten a response to some of those proposals from Congress? Yeah, we'll, we'll be putting those out shortly, putting those out publicly. But but that's this is the perfect example. Again, a very divisive issue. We we put Republicans and Democrats in a room together and and we start hashing it out. It doesn't. This is not about agreeing on everything. It's not about being nicer to each other. Although we certainly need that. It really is about disagreeing in productive ways and, and finding common ground. We found an, an immense amount of common ground. We're still working through some of the uh, some some of the details, but it's getting very close. We'll watch for that, governors. Thank you for disagreeing better. We appreciate it. Thank you, Margaret. And we'll be back in a moment. Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. The CDC announced Friday the number of respiratory illness cases is increasing across most areas of the country. That's RSV. COVID, flu. So we go now to former FDA commissioner and Pfizer board member, Dr. Scott Gottlieb. Uh, Dr. Gottlieb, uh, thanks for coming back. What should we be bracing for this season? Yeah, we're probably looking at a more typical winter pathogen season than what we've seen in past years. There was a very dense epidemic of respiratory syncytial virus, as you noted at the top, uh, in the south. That's now abating. We're seeing it spread to the northeast right now and other parts of the country. That's an infection that uh, affects little children, particularly hard and older adults. Thankfully, there's some treatments available and some ways to protect infants that people could take advantage of this year. With respect to flu, flu has started later than it did last year. It's predominantly flu A. The vaccine does appear to cover it well, and the vaccination rates have been quite good this year. About 38% of adults and children have been vaccinated for flu. There's no reason to believe that we're going to have a worse flu season than what we've seen in past years, and probably, hopefully, less than what we saw last year, where we saw a very dense and early epidemic of flu. With COVID, uh, cases right now are less than what they were last year at this point of time. We're averaging about 600,000 cases a day based on some modeling work that has been done off of wastewater. And the predominant strain that's increasing in prevalence is the BA286 strain, the one we talked about a couple of months ago that spread through parts of Europe. And a particular variant of that called JN1 that does appear to spread more easily. There's no reason to believe that it's more dangerous than previous strains of COVID. Mm -hmm. And people who've been vaccinated with the new variant vaccine or who had a recent COVID infection should have some protection against this new variant. But we've seen these clusters of this uh, unusual pneumonia in the state of Ohio. There's some reports in Massachusetts and Ohio, 145 cases in children ages three to 14 years. What's making these kids sick in these clusters? 
Yeah, when CDC's looked inside these clusters, what they're seeing is typical pathogens. So adenovirus, strep pneumonia, and mycoplasma pneumonia. And mycoplasma pneumonia is the one that a lot of people have their eye on. It caused very dense outbreaks in parts of Europe. It's also what's responsible in part for the outbreak that we saw in China uh, affecting children. It's a known bacteria that is epidemic every three to five years. So we've seen epidemics of this in the past. We haven't seen an epidemic wave since COVID first broke out. So in some respects, we're due for it. Uh, a lot of children don't have immunity to it. They haven't, they haven't experienced a mycoplasma pneumonia infection. For most people, it's a mild illness. It's self-limiting, but it can cause a chronic cough, and you, and you need to be alert for it. Some children will get into trouble with it. They will become more sick. They'll develop fevers, rashes, a persistent cough. Uh, and doctors need to be alert because the typical antibiotics that we use to treat uh, usual strains of pneumonia don't work with mycoplasma. You need particular kinds of drugs called macrolides, drugs like azithromycin or clarithromycin, with a, which are both available as generic uh, drugs. So doctors need to be looking for it. Parents are taking notes on that one. Um, I you, you mentioned China. There were, including me, um, <laughs> Republican senators, including Marco Rubio, sent a letter this week. Um, and he's, you know, a ranking on Intelligence Committee, someone who, when he speaks, people listen to. He says a ban on travel could save our country from death, lockdowns, mandates and further outbreaks. Is that appropriate? Well, look, I think right now we have more information about what is spreading in China, and it does appear to be uh, more usual strains of illness. So there's no reason to believe that there's something novel spreading there. I think at the outset of that uh, outbreak in China, when the reports first surfaced, we didn't have a lot of information. The World Health Organization expressed frustration uh, that China wasn't being forthcoming. And it's more of the same. I mean, China needs to, the Chinese government needs to be more forthcoming when these things do uh, arise so that they can help inform other countries, because inevitably what's spreading there is going to spread in other parts of the world, and we all need to be working together. So I think some of the initial concerns uh, that something novel could be spreading in China were well-founded, because China just wasn't being forthcoming, the Chinese government. Mm -hmm. And the CDC director said something similar to you, that this is not um, a new or novel pathogen. How can the U.S. be confident if, like you're saying, China's not sharing info? Yeah, I think we've learned that we need to have more active surveillance. So you still see um, testing of wastewater on planes coming out of certain parts of the world, hopefully including China. Uh, that's one good way to detect if something novel is spreading there. We have good flu surveillance in that parts, part of the world as well. So if there was a novel strain of, of flu spreading, I think we would detect it. But the reality is that we're subject to the cooperation of foreign governments, and foreign governments need to be working with global health authorities. We should have learned our lessons coming out of COVID. A lot yeah. of nations did and do share more readily. China does not still. And that is a real frustration and a cause for concern. Dr. Gottlieb, always good to have your analysis. We'll be right back. Last week saw the departures of several well-known public servants. Their careers ranged from highly distinguished to controversial to disastrous. Here's Mark Strassman. In light of the expulsion of the gentleman from New York, Mr. Santos, the whole number of the House is now 434. George Santos, ex-congressman. Ex, as in expelled. That part of his resume is real. His parting shot reportedly as he left the Capitol to hell with his place. Over time, he had become self-parody. His serial grift, his federal indictment for fraud, the way he piled one fiction on another, seeming to breathe on someone else's dime. I no longer have to answer a question. The next president of the United States, my husband, Jimmy Carter. <laughs> Rosalind Carter put the public in her service. Unelected but undeniable, Jimmy Carter's first lady was powerful. He always knew how I felt. Sometimes he took my advice and sometimes he didn't. In her long life, she championed mental health, women's rights, and caregivers. Three former presidents and all five living first ladies saluted her last week. Mrs. Carter eulogized as a servant leader with a servant's heart. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we had more leaders that kept that covenant and served well? Sandra Day O'Connor died last Friday at 93. The Stanford law grad was initially offered jobs as a legal secretary. She became famous and powerful, the first female Supreme Court justice. 
It's nicknamed during her tenure, the O'Connor Court. Opportunities at every level, not just for lawyers and judges, but across the spectrum, opened for women. O'Connor was considered a swing vote on issues like abortion. She disputed her role as the deciding vote in George Bush's victory in the 2000 election. You were the deciding vote in that case. When I don't see how you can it. say anybody was the deciding vote. Well, it was, well, okay. They all counted. They all counted. Yes. Uh, you have no regrets. I guess. No, I mean, it was a tough deal in a closely fought election. And it's no fun to be part of a group of decision makers that has to decide which side the ball is going to fall on. And Henry Kissinger. In modern times, no American diplomat was more powerful or polarizing. With us now, Henry Kissinger, who is National Security Advisor to President Nixon. A guest on Face the Nation more than 20 times here in 1985, 10 years after the U.S. withdrawal from Vietnam. The Kennedy and Johnson administrations took on a task that was greater than they estimated. Celebrated for Nixon's trip to China and vilified for the secret carpet bombing of Cambodia. He both won the Nobel Peace Prize and was pilloried as a war criminal. Right to his death at 100, Kissinger tried to shape U.S. policy to advance American interests. His admirers hope he rests in peace with honor. And you can check out those Face the Nation appearances on our YouTube channel. Thank you all for watching. Until next week, I'm Margaret Brennan. Today's guests were chair of the House Intelligence Committee, Republican Mike Turner, Republican presidential candidate Chris Christie, Utah Governor Spencer Cox, Colorado Governor Jared Polis, John Kirby, the coordinator for strategic communications for the White House National Security Council, and former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Shelley Schwartz. Face the Nation originates in CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com, and you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Face the Nation is also rebroadcast on our CBS News streaming network on Sundays at 1.34, 10 p.m. Eastern, and again at 4 a.m. the next morning. And it's available through our apps, CBS News and Paramount+. Plus. If you like Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.